This morning we're going to uh, begin our journey uh, uh, of looking at the churches uh, in the book of Revelation. We sort of started last week with the first verse of chapter 2. Uh, and as we look at this, I want you to pay special attention all the way to who is speaking. <clears throat> and if you'll be, be uh, alert, uh, in every letter there's one thing that happens over and over. It says... Let him that hath an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You'll notice that's in the present tense. Never was it ever written in the past tense or the future tense. The Spirit was speaking when this book was first written to the first people who heard it. The Spirit has been speaking all through history every time the church opened the word and when we open the Word and look at this book and read these verses, the Spirit is still speaking. If I could refer you also to verse 4 of chapter 1, you will see that this entire book, the entire book, is addressed to the seven churches that are in Asia. They were, they're not anymore. It's just addressed to the whole church. We identified that when we mentioned that there were seven and although those seven there were seven churches there there were more than seven but the number seven itself represents completeness and it's written to the entire church and so the spirit is speaking to the entire church now this morning our goal is going to be to hear what the spirit is saying to the first church the first the the church at Ephesus because if we can hear what the spirit was saying to them when he wrote it, then we can also hear what the Spirit is saying to us today. By the way, and I know this is going to sort of tilt some of you just a little bit like a pinball machine when you used to play pinball and it would come up tilt and you couldn't do anything anymore. The Bible never insinuates or makes it seem that these are seven church ages. The Bible never says that. I know some preacher said that somewhere a long time ago and it got written in some Bible notes and it's still written in some Bible notes but the Bible never says it the Bible says these are seven churches to the seven churches that are in Asia not seven church ages and you may understand it that way while people teach this there's no biblical support for it so we understand that ours our church can be the church at Ephesus or our church can be the church at Sardis or it can be a combination of the two. No one church was to read one letter. All seven were sent to all the churches. Don't think that these were letters sent out. This was an entire book sent out to be read in each of these churches. Not only to be read in each of these churches, but to be read in the First Baptist Church of Loosedale, Mississippi. This is a divine appointment when we open this book. It's a divine appointment when we open any book of the Word of God. No more or no less a divine appointment when we read Genesis 1-1 or when we read Revelation 1-1. This book is the Word of God, and it comes from the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to first consider, before we read any verses, the city itself, because you think about Loosedale, and uh, that's where we are. But we need to think for a minute about Ephesus and where the people lived and 
what it was like in this community where they uh, received this, this book to whom John was writing. Actually, it was the, not the capital of the province of Asia. It was probably the most important city. And we're told at the time, it's not anymore, but at the time, it was a port city of extraordinary beauty. Some of you went to Alaska and you uh, got off uh, at a port somewhere. I don't know what that was like, but it is said that if you got off the ship in Ephesus, you would have approached the city on a, on a broad avenue lined with 35 magnificent columns. Uh, well, it was 35 feet wide and it was lined with majestic columns. It, it led right into the heart of the city. And by the way, don't imagine that it was a small town like Loosedale because the population of Ephesus at the time was a quarter of a million people. There are a lot of people that lived there. They had sports complexes in Ephesus. They, they had major stadiums that would hold 25,000 people. There were temples there built in honor of past emperors, many of whom had been declared divine after their deaths. But the largest temple by far, it's also, we read about it in scripture, is the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis. You know, some people got upset on one occasion uh, because they were uh, doing, uh, when, when Paul was preaching, they thought he was uh, damaging the ministry of this temple at Artemis, and so they got upset with him. So this temple at, uh, the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis was four th times larger than the Parthenon in Rome. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. A Roman historian of the time records it as 425 feet long, 220 feet wide and 60 feet high, supported by 127 columns of Perean marble, 36 of them decorated with gold and jewels. So this is a magnificent city. This is not Loosedale. I love Loosedale, but Ephesus would have been a sight to behold in the time that this was written. Now, what do we know about the church in the city? We know a little bit about the city itself, but what do we know about the church? You know, these places seem... Uh, distant from us, but we, the New Testament actually tells us a good bit about this church. It was started by Paul. He came to Ephesus with two people you might remember in the Bible. Their names are Priscilla and Aquila. He preached the gospel there uh, initially amidst great opposition. Uh, eventually, he continued on his journey, leaving Priscilla and Aquila there. And another great preacher named Apollos shows up at Ephesus. He needed a little help from Priscilla and Aquila, and they gave that to him. They carried on the ministry until Paul returned. And when Paul returned, there was a great awakening at Ephesus. You remember when the people came and they burned their magic books and, and, and gave their lives to the Lord. So Paul carried on this great ministry until eventually he left. He entrusted the work to a young man named Timothy. On Sunday nights, we, we looked for a couple of weeks at the first chapter of 1 Timothy, where Paul said to Timothy, I urged you to remain on at Ephesus so that you could instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And then after Timothy, John himself, the old apostle John, was part of the church in Ephesus. So this church had a great legacy, just like your church has a great legacy. One of the things that we need to do on occasion, and maybe we just need to stop and do that one day, is let people tell the stories of the history of this church. 
of the great things that have happened here in the past, of the, of the great leaders who have been here, and the, and the commitments that were made to the work of the Lord here. Those kind of commitments were made in the church at Ephesus, and they had a rich and illustrious history. So now we come to chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 to begin with. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks amidst the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those that call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, while we've observed some things that we know about the city itself and, and the church itself, now we're looking at the church from a different perspective you know, you, you walk up to a town, you look at it, you look it over, you come into this church, you say, man, I like this church, it's, it's sort of unique. But now we're looking at what Jesus has to say about this church. And that's what we're interested in this morning, is what would Jesus say about our church? What would he say about you? What would he say about me? What would he say about our plans his plans for this church, and how would he evaluate our plans for that matter? Remember, the picture here is Jesus walking in the midst of the lampstands. He's walking in the midst of his church. The Lord Jesus knew their circumstances. He knew their battles. He knew the ones they won. He also knew the ones they lost. He was walking in the midst of the church at Ephesus, not in their building, that's not the picture. He's walking alongside them in their streets and in their shops and in their homes. And Jesus knew all about their doctrinal integrity. Sound, sound teaching does matter to the, law, to, to the Lord Jesus. False apostles need to be identified and exposed. False teaching never needs to be tolerated in the church. And he said to them, as Paul left Timothy there for that purpose, and apparently it was successful, he said, you have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not and, and proved them to be false. So this church had a great history of pastors and leaders. No wonder they were quick to identify false teaching. They were doctrinally sound, opposing even this group that he will later identify in a verse we are yet to read called the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know much about them except that they advocated compromise with the culture. Think of that. Isn't that appropriate for today? Isn't that appropriate message to think about those who advocate compromise with the culture, even getting AI to write a, 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 a counterfeit Bible verse to support the culture? You think culture feels guilty? You think culture needs a little comfort? You think that they need God to affirm what they're doing, even though the Bible does not affirm what they're doing? 
So here we have Jesus saying, hey, you've opposed that. You need to continue to stand up for that. But then he identifies the problem in the church at Ephesus. And the big problem was not their doctrine. It was their devotion. It was their devotion. They were doctrinally sound, but devotionally dead. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think I can make that plain. It means your preacher's real smart, and he does a lot of study on, on what the Bible has to say, and he knows all the right answers, but his heart is not where it needs to be. His walk with the Lord is not where it needs to be. His personal relationship with me is not where it needs to be. And the same thing is true with your deacons. Your deacons, don't, your, their devotional life is out of order. Their, their love for me, their passion for me is all broken uh, they're good, strong, sound leaders, but they're not who they need to be in their relationship with me. That's what Jesus was saying to this church at Ephesus. You are doctrinally sound. You're a good, strong church, but devotionally you're dead. You've left your first love. You've lost your passion for me. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, we understand that not only did Jesus walk in the midst of the church at Ephesus, in their, in their streets, and in their shops, and in their homes. Jesus also walks in the midst of First Baptist Church, Loosedale. He walks among us and with us, not just in our building, but Jesus walks among us when we're out in our... Let me give you a good illustration. You remember the story in the Gospel of John when Jesus first met Nathaniel, and Nathaniel, he walks up, and Nathaniel says, How in the world do you know me? And Jesus said... I saw you when you were sitting under your fig tree. That was the place of private devotion for the Jew. And Jesus said, I was there with you when you were having your devotion. I know you. I know more about you than you think I know. And Jesus knows all about us. And the lives that we've been living are the life that we've not been living. And that's what he was saying to this church at Ephesus. And so what are the indications when a person has lost their first love. Well, one of the things that can happen is that we lose our love for, for the Word of God. We, we don't get up in the morning and look forward to having our devotion every day. We don't open our Bible. Our Bible has dust on it. We don't know. We don't, we don't relate to the Lord anymore. And we lose our love for other people. We, we, we get uh, cold toward others. We get distant toward others. We no longer need the people of God and so we can separate from them. In other words, we don't have, we don't, not only do we separate from them uh, relationally, we can separate from the church. We can be gone from the church for long periods of time without it bothering us whatsoever. Or we can dip our, dip our toe in a little bit of church through the week, and a little bit is all we need. We don't have a passion to know more and more about the Lord and grow in our relationship with the Lord. There are a lot of ways that shows up in our life. But I would say to you the first way it shows up is in your own devotional life. So the Lord says here in verse 5, remember then how far you have fallen and do the deeds you did at first. Otherwise I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I tell you there are moments in the life of a church when God speaks to the body collectively, he speaks to us individually. But you see here, he was speaking to the body collectively. He was calling the body collectively to repent. He was calling people to be more 
the people that he wanted them to be and he had called them to be. He was calling them back into a relationship with himself. Now, I don't know how the Lord might be speaking of you personally. I don't know how he might be dealing with you. You might have come in here this morning already having a sense that your heart was not what it used to be, that you were out of step with the Lord. That can so easily happen for all of us for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes we are defiled by sin, and uh, the Lord says, if I cherish sin in my heart, then he's not going to hear me. And so my prayer life is broken. Sometimes my, my devotional life is broken. That just happens to all of us. It happens because of life. And so there are times we need to renew our relationship with the Lord. When the Lord speaks to us about certain things, he may identify some specific area of your life where your relationship with him is broken. It may be some secret sin that you have in your life. And he says to you, you love that sin more than you love me. You cherish that more than you cherish me. And he's asking you today to turn away from that, to repent. Repent means to turn away from that which you turn to that caused you to turn away from the Lord. And so you have to turn away from it and turn back to the Lord. And that may be what the Lord is saying to you today. I don't know how old the church of Ephesus was exactly when the Lord wrote this letter, but maybe 40 years old. You know, they tell us that churches have life cycles. We know that they do. As a matter of fact, churches go through all sorts of cycles. Uh, I've been in and around church a long time. I was pastor of one church for 19 years and four months, and uh, it had cycles just like this. You know why churches have cycles like that? Because you and I have cycles like that, where our relationship with the Lord is up and it's down. It's up and it's down. The Lord knows when it's up and he knows when it's down. Where is yours? And so here he's speaking to a church collectively because the church collectively was in one of the cycles so that it was so far down that the danger was, here's the danger, the Lord said, unless you repent, unless you turn back to me, unless you address this problem that you have in your relationship with me, it's become so severe that I might need to remove your lampstand. Now, when he's talking about the lampstand, what are the lampstands? Remember, the scripture interprets itself. It's no mystery. The lampstand is the church. He said, I might have to remove your church. I might have to let your church no longer be a church. Because you see, when you lose your love for me, your light no longer shines as it should. And when your light no longer shines as it should, we need to replace it with a, with a light that will. Now, he's speaking to the church collectively. But when he, whenever he speaks to the church collectively, make no mistake, he also speaks to the church individually, to you and to me. He identifies the areas in your life that are out of step with him. I don't have a clue about what those are. I know in my own life. Preachers have no insight into the life of other people. I can't look at you and see inside your heart. But you know what the Lord says here? He says, if you look 
at chapter 2, verse 2, I know, I know. That's a pretty big word in Scripture, and it always means to know with an intimacy. He has an intimate knowledge of where you stand with him, an intimate knowledge of what needs to change in your life and in mine. So what is it the Lord would have you to do today? You know, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And when he speaks to the churches, he speaks to individuals within the churches. The Spirit is speaking. The Spirit and Christ, they're one. When you hear from the Spirit, you've heard from the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Spirit is speaking, He's serious about what He wants you to do. The Spirit speaks to you. He speaks to me. Let him that has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying. The Spirit is speaking. You'll also notice down the way in verse 7, He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Of course, paradise uh, is a picture of the Garden of Eden, basically, beginning. That's what paradise means. It's a garden. It takes us back, really, in a way, all the way back to the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve in a perfect relationship with God, in a perfect place where they're walking with the Lord, where they have intimacy with God. And, of course, not only does it take us all the way back to the beginning, but it takes us all the way to the end, to that paradise that God talks about, that place in heaven where we can be with Him. But the intimacy, the intimacy that Adam and Eve had, the intimacy that He wants for us in heaven, is an intimacy that He offers to us today. You'll notice through Scripture when Abraham in the Old Testament walked with God, what did God call Abraham? He gave him a name, friend. In the New Testament, what did Jesus call his disciples? Friend. A friendship, a fellowship, an intimacy, an opportunity. And that's what God wants you to turn, return to. That's what God wants us to return to as a church. He offers this to the overcomer. Of course, that's a future promise, yes, but it's also a present promise. He offers this to the overcomer. This is a word, by the way, we looked at earlier. It's the word nikaio in Greek. In English, you see it every day. I had it yesterday on my shirt, a little mark, a little swish. Nike. Nike, the tennis shoe, is the Greek word that we find in the book of Revelation. It comes from that word. It means victory to the one who's victorious, to the one who's the overcomer. What have we got to overcome? What have we got to fight against? We've got to fight against the enemy. There's an enemy that wants to pull us down. There's an enemy that doesn't want our church up here. There's an enemy that wants our church down here. There's an enemy that doesn't want you up here in your walk with the Lord. There's an enemy that wants you down here. He wants to drag you down. You know that. Paul said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the spiritual forces of, the, of this present darkness. We're in a battle. We're in a battle. And we need to stand strong. We need to be the people that God wants us to be, not only doctrinally, but devotionally, 
That means every day I get up and the first thing on my mind is my walk with the Lord. Lord, how can I walk with you today? How can I be closer to you today? Not how can I get to my next opportunity to sin? That's not the passion of my life if I'm the believer that I should be. The passion of my life is, Lord, how can I be closer to you? What can I do today to know you more? What can I do today to tune my ear so that I can hear the voice of your spirit who is speaking? You know, we don't want the Lord to take away our lampstand individually or corporately. We want our light to so shine before men that they see our good works and ultimately glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let he that hath an ear hear what the Spirit is saying. Let's pray.